Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we have the results of a very orderly town meeting in Provincetown and the more contentious situation surrounding the special town meeting in Truro. We also have a story about alleged abuse of J-1 students in Provincetown this summer, and Ira Wood is here with a matter of opinion about chicken soup and daffodils. The special town meeting in Provincetown on Monday passed all 14 articles on the warrant, including a $2 million purchase of land for new housing on Nelson Avenue and two measures to regulate short-term rentals. About half of the votes appeared to be unanimous, and even the two measures proposing new short-term rental regulations drew only about 10 votes in opposition. Turnout was high, with 493 voters present at town hall, but agreement still seemed to come easily. Although there was some discussion of the proposed purchase of almost an acre of land on Nelson Avenue, when the article was called to a vote, there was a sea of hands in favor, and only about six against. The Provincetown Select Board had already completed purchase and sale agreements for the Nelson Avenue properties, but voters needed to approve the funding before the deals could be closed. Voters had questions about the article that declared the site of the current police station on Shank Painter Road to be surplus property, so the Select Board could convey it to a developer for housing. After town manager Alex Morse addressed questions about the details of any potential future development, he invited voters to voice their concerns to the planning and zoning boards as the project advances. The article ended up passing with about five people voting against it. Voters also passed a similar surplus property declaration to enable the development of housing at 288A Bradford Street, with only one or two hands raised in opposition. Before the meeting moved on to Articles 11 and 12, Morse gave a brief presentation on short-term rental regulations. The town had commissioned an impact analysis that found that the primary use of housing in Provincetown is as vacation homes. Morse said that in most cases, short-term rentals were secondary to the owner's personal use of the home. To ensure future properties are not used only as short-term rentals, the town proposed a ban on corporations obtaining short-term rental certificates and a limit on the number of short-term rental certificates that an individual can have to just two. Both measures passed easily, making Provincetown the first town on the Cape with a short-term rental bylaw. Article 13, a ban on fractional home ownership arrangements, similar to one passed by Tisbury's town meeting this spring, passed unanimously with little discussion. The night's final article, an adjustment to the town's accessory dwelling unit bylaw, drew only five votes in opposition. The entire meeting took less than two hours. The situation was a bit different in Truro, as challenges to dozens of voter registrations had led town officials to delay the special town meeting, originally scheduled for October 21st. 
The meeting, which was intended to consider both the Walsh property development plan and a new DPW facility, is now set for 5.30 p.m. on Thursday, November 2nd. That meeting may be delayed again because of the large number of voter challenges that still need to be resolved. Raphael Richter of Truro submitted 66 of the 67 complaints received by the town clerk last week in sworn affidavits. Richter said that emails from the Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayers Association prompted him to review the voter rolls. The nonprofit association had asked its members to change their voter registration to the town of Truro to exert more influence at the special town meeting. David Sullivan, former legal counsel to the Secretary of the Commonwealth Elections Division, said that such a strategy is illegal under state law. Between July 1st, when the association launched a voter registration effort, and the October 11th deadline to register for town meeting, 119 new voters were added. Richter told the Cape Cod Times that he cross-referenced names of the newly registered voters with publicly available tax, assessor, and property information. That cross-referencing led to the list of people Richter believes illegally registered to vote in Truro. The Provincetown Independent found that of the 66 voters challenged by Richter, 14 claim a residential tax exemption in another town. Each challenge filed by Richter lists at least three pieces of evidence of non-residents, including not appearing on the Truro Street listing, not paying a vehicle excise tax here, and registering with an out-of-town mailing address. At a meeting on October 18th, the Board of Registrars determined that the challenges were substantive enough to call for a hearing. A 67th complaint will also be reviewed. Filed by former town moderator Monica Kraft, it challenges the registration of Anne Greenbaum, vice chair of the planning board. Greenbaum has been a voter in Truro since January 2017, but still claims the residential tax exemption for her home in Boston. If removed as a voter, Greenbaum would no longer be eligible to serve on the planning board. Greenbaum told The Independent she absolutely plans to go through with a hearing, saying that Truro is where she does all of her volunteer and civic work. She added that she plans to sell her house in Boston. Town manager Darren Tangeman said the town sent a letter stating residency requirements for voting to all challenged registrants on October 20th. He said that the town would issue summonses for hearings this week. Voters will be examined under oath at the hearings. Richter said he believed many people changed their registrations based on inaccurate information. He hoped they would contact the clerk and remove themselves prior to their hearing. Six of the 67 challenge voters were no longer registered in Truro as of an updated list on Monday, October 23rd. Town officials gathered outside the Truro Central School on Saturday to announce the rescheduled date for the special town meeting. A crowd of about 75 people were there, with several people carrying signs of protest. Many had been summoned by Take Back Truro, a self-proclaimed citizens' movement focused on keeping Truro rural. Town officials were aware of the group plan, and there was a police detail on site. Town moderator Paul Wazotsky exercised his legal authority to continue the town meeting for up to 14 days to give the registrar's time to consider the voter challenges. 
As Wazotsky spoke, and as town council John Giorgio answered questions, the crowd jeered and heckled them, periodically drowning out the speakers. Town officials posted a message on social media after the meeting about the lack of civility and disruptive conduct at Saturday's gathering. Tangeman said that to ensure the integrity of town meeting and the vote, the town will wait to hold town meeting until every challenge is resolved. Two citizens' petitions are circulating in Brewster that are intended to create bylaws in that town to regulate short-term rentals. The petitions would require that short-term rentals register with the town for an annual fee of $150 and limit the number of short-term rentals that any one owner could operate. The goal is to prevent negative impacts on neighborhood character, housing availability, housing prices, the availability of long-term rental units, and the impacts on infrastructure. Short-term rentals in Brewster now comprise about 15% of Brewster's total housing, according to state registration records. Registration of short-term rentals would ensure the unit meets sanitary and zoning codes. The number of occupants in any unit would be limited to two per bedroom plus two, so there could be up to 10 people in a four-bedroom home. The bylaw would take effect January 1, 2025. The second article limits the number of short-term rentals that any one owner could operate in Brewster to one, unless the owner lives in Brewster full-time, in which case they could operate two. The petitions were launched by Matilda Delano, a Brewster resident who has been looking for a permanent home for her family of seven for more than a decade. She said that both bylaws were intended to address issues that she had been hoping for years the town would act on, but didn't seem to be addressing head-on. The select board declined to recommend the articles, voting against both by a 3-0 margin. Mary Chafee recused herself, and Cindy Bingham was absent. When lobster fisherman Michael Packard leapt from his boat on June 11, 2021, off the coast of Provincetown, he found himself engulfed in darkness inside the mouth of a humpback whale. Packard's incredible story of survival was turned into a documentary by journalist and Boston University professor David Abel and filmmaker Andy Laub. Now, after having its world debut at the New Hampshire Film Festival, Cape Cod audiences will have the chance to see In the Whale at Cape Cinema for one night only. In the Whale tells the tale of how a routine diving trip turned into a story of biblical proportions. Initially, Packard thought he'd landed inside the jaws of a great white shark, but the lack of teeth and injuries led him to believe he was inside a whale. The ordeal lasted around 30 seconds before he felt the giant animal shaking. Suddenly, he was launched from the whale's mouth, swim fins first, back into the ocean. Now, Packard's story will take to the big screen at the Cape Cinema for a one-night-only event on Sunday, November 5th. A Q&A with Abel is planned after the screening. Tickets for In the Whale are available online at capecinema.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A September health inspection of housing violations at 5 Center Street in Provincetown led to the arrest of property owner Paul Schofield 
after Health Director Leslie Roll found Schofield assaulting four J-1 visa workers who were renting living space from him. The four Bulgarian students said that Schofield's arrest followed months of harassment, assault, theft, and substandard living conditions. Schofield runs the Rose Acre Guest Apartments on Center Street and the Prince Albert Guest House on Commercial Street, as well as a seven-bedroom rental at 7 Center Street with his husband, Dr. Andrew Jorgensen. Two of the students and their employers at Mad as a Hatter and the Dolphin Fleet allege that Schofield refused to pay the students for work they did at Schofield and Jorgensen's properties. They say he also broke into their apartment, stole money, destroyed their personal belongings, and assaulted them in his attempts to evict them. Police reports from July and August show that the students, along with Kristen Samak, owner of Mad as a Hatter, and Richard Kelly, manager of the Dolphin Fleet, went to the Provincetown Police several times before the police ultimately arrested Schofield. Schofield offered them a one-bedroom unit with an agreement that they would also work at his guest houses. After the first week, Schofield paid them in cash, but he delayed signing any documents. According to a police report filed on July 19th, the students said Schofield owed them an estimated $7,500. The students said they still have not received payment. They are now back in Bulgaria and don't know if they want to pursue legal action. They say Schofield began threatening to evict them in mid-July after they completed work on the guest houses. One of the students said that Schofield would appear at all hours of the day and night, demanding that they move out of the apartment within 24 hours. On July 19th, Schofield arrived at the student's unit and attempted to remove their belongings, which led to a physical altercation. Samak and Kelly brought the students to the Provincetown Police Station, where they detailed the alleged abuses to Officer Brendan Dabrelet. In a follow-up meeting with Dabrelet the next day, the students told him they discovered that $350 in cash they kept in the unit had disappeared, but police did not pursue criminal charges. The police were called again on August 14th regarding Schofield's aggressive conduct. Schofield was alleged to have grabbed one of the students by the throat. Schofield shut off the student's water on August 27th, according to an email Richard Kelly sent to Leslie Rawl and Code Compliance Officer Aaron Hobart. Police records show that Kristen Samak also called on August 27th to report that Schofield had shut off the water. Rawl and Hobart inspected the unit on August 28th. In her report, Rawl documented numerous violations of state standards. Roll ordered Schofield and Jurgensen to fix the violations within 24 hours and to schedule a follow-up inspection. That inspection on September 7th led to Schofield's arrest. Police responded to a call from Roll of a disturbance at 5 Center Street. When he arrived, the officer witnessed Schofield attempting to remove a mattress from the apartment and elbowing one of the students in the face when he tried to stop him. Schofield was arrested and arraigned the next day at Orleans District Court. He's charged with assault and battery, disorderly conduct, and destruction of property.
The students were relocated to the Harbor Hotel the next day. They stayed there and then at the Sandcastle Resort for a total of 16 nights before returning to Bulgaria. Town manager Alex Morse told the select board on October 10th that the students were relocated because corrections to the unit they had rented from Schofield had not been made and Roll had deemed it uninhabitable. According to Morse, Schofield and Jorgensen still owe the town over $3,000 for the students' hotel stays. The developer who purchased the former Bayberry Plaza on Route 6A in Orleans, also known as the Underground Mall, has downsized his plans for housing on the site. The earlier proposal for 42 rental apartments has been scaled down to 29 rental units, with the possibility of a handful of condominiums mixed in. Christopher DeSisto, president of Maplehurst Builders in Boston, said septic design considerations were one reason, given that the new town sewer doesn't service the property. George Maservi, the town's director of planning and development, said last week he had recently met with DeSisto and reviewed a full set of plans for a revised proposal, which he characterized as robust. He expects formal plans to be filed with the town within a month. The project will require a special permit from the Zoning Board of Appeals for the apartments to be constructed. Maservi said he initially thought DeSisto had reduced the number of units to 29, so the project would fall below the 30-unit threshold that triggers a review by the Cape Cod Commission. Changes in the economy also had an effect on the developer's plans. DeSisto said interest rate hikes have made the project significantly more challenging. While all of the units were originally planned to be rentals, the developer is now considering a hybrid model with the sale of some units helping to defray project costs. According to the Builder's website, the apartments will be a mix of one- and two-bedroom units, with three buildings along Route 6A and two buildings in a courtyard. The existing mall building will be converted into a protected parking area. DeSisto purchased the mall property in 2021 for $2.1 million. The Homeless Prevention Council is now operating out of its new offices on Main Street in Orleans, and its former location on Old Tote Road appears set to be converted to housing. The Zoning Board of Appeals on October 4th voted 4-0 to approve a plan to create three new apartments in the council's former building at 14 Old Tote Road. Plans call for three new apartments to be built on the main floor that used to house the council's offices. There's already an existing apartment on the basement level. Nello Trevisan, who sits on the council's board of directors, said that the new units will be used to help house employees of the Double Dragon restaurant on Route 6A. The old Tote Road building was built in 1983 and was purchased by Interfaith Council for the Homeless, which later became the Homeless Prevention Council, in July of 2000. The nonprofit sold the building in December of 2022 for $550,000. That same month, the council closed on its new offices at 8 Main Street for $1.2 million. Money from the old Tote Road sale was used to help finance the move, which took place this spring. Sean Donahue, 
The attorney representing the project's general contractor told the zoning board at its September 20th meeting that no exterior changes are planned for the building. In addition to the zoning board, the project also was reviewed and approved by the Site Plan Review Committee. A timetable for project construction wasn't given to the zoning board. Mary Anderson, the chair of the Harwich Select Board, announced her resignation from the board on Wednesday. In an email to town clerk Emily Mitchell, Anderson said the move was effective immediately and was necessary for personal reasons. Reached on Wednesday afternoon, Anderson said there are a number of pressing issues she would have liked to continue addressing, with housing being number one. Anderson said she believes Harwich is in excellent hands with town administrator Joe Powers and the many fine employees that work for the town. The former executive director of the Family Pantry of Cape Cod, Anderson was handily elected to the board in May of 2021 and had been serving as chair. Giacosa Chamber Music opens its 23-24 season next weekend with their Trios for Four ensemble in a concert entitled Dictator. Giacosa's directors, Heather Goodchild-Wade on violin and Elizabeth Schultz on cello, will be joined by returning guest artists Stephen Mann and Ray Wong on piano for a program featuring two pillars of the piano trio repertoire, Beethoven's Piano Trio Opus 70 No. 1, Ghost, and Antonin Dvorak's Piano Trio No. 4 in E minor, Dumki. Wade said one of the unifying aspects of the two works is that they were both written by composers who were impacted by totalitarianism. What the composers wrote and how they wrote it was in many ways dictated by the political regimes that they were witnessing. The music functions as a reminder of humanity's past experiences. Also on the program will be an arrangement of Astor Piazzolla's Spring from the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires for piano, four hands. Concerts take place at 3 p.m. November 4th at the Dennis Union Church on Main Street in Dennis Village and at 3 p.m. November 5th at the First Congregational Church on Main Street in Chatham. Tickets are available at giacosachambermusic.com That's G-I-O-C-O-S-A chambermusic.com those 18 and under are admitted free, and a pay-what-you-can admission option is available at all concerts. More information, including subscription options, venue information, and performance times can be found at Giacosa's website, giacosachambermusic.com. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is the time of year when many people I know are feeling ill. Slightly under the weather for some, downright debilitated in body and spirit for others. It could be seasonal allergies. It could be more serious flu, RSV, COVID. Folks I know have had them all. Or it could be the heartbreaking madness of the world at large. War in the Middle East, chaos in Congress, 
climate catastrophe, deadly shooting sprees, take your pick. It's enough to sicken anyone who watches the news. But what can you do about it? I have only two remedies that work for me. Chicken soup for healing and daffodils for hope. With a humorous nod to the 12th century Egyptian-Jewish philosopher-physician Maimonides, who claimed that chicken soup could be relied on for relieving colds and nourishing pregnant women, even curing asthma and leprosy, chicken soup has been jokingly referred to as the Jewish penicillin. But for my friends who find themselves conflating everything Jewish with the far right-wing Netanyahu government of Israel, I simply call it grandma's chicken soup. Actually, almost every culture in the world has a reliable recipe for chicken soup. The Greeks make theirs with egg and lemon and call it avgo lemono. The Chinese use ginger and scallions. It was first prescribed as a therapy in the year 60 AD in a Roman medical encyclopedia, but its origins can be traced all the way back to the Han dynasty. And, according to a recent article by a professor of dietetics and nutrition at the University of Dayton, chicken soup is no placebo. There's real science behind its healing effects. For one thing, its classic ingredients, chicken, vegetables, and noodles, give it a distinctive umami flavor, and foods with umami contain a lot of amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. Umami also increases the appetite, a pretty important factor when you're feeling too sick to eat. Got a stuffed nose and a nagging cough? Your upper airways are inflamed. Chicken soup can actually lower the number of white blood cells that are causing it all. You don't get any of these benefits from a can of Campbell's, by the way, because supermarket soup is ultra-processed. It's the core nutrients in the homemade versions that set it apart. The essential fatty acids, iron and selenium in the broth, vitamins C, K, and beta-carotene in the veggies, niacin in the chicken, even the noodles provide the body with glucose to give you energy. My wife insists that adding a little white wine helps release the flavor molecules and assists in dissolving fats. Truth be told, when both of us are sick at the same time, we always chill a bottle of champagne to drink with the soup. The CDC recommends against it, of course, but other sources say it contains a lot of plant antioxidants, increases mood, and decreases stress, which, it seems to me, is exactly what we need in a world that's falling apart and we can only hope does not self-destruct. And what represents hope for the future more than planting daffodils. At my house, we've been planting about 50 a year for decades, and every spring, individually at first, they emerge from the hard earth to prove to us that life does indeed go on, no matter how dark and cold the winter has been, that the natural world will thrive despite what humans do every day to prevent it, and that beholding an acre 
of shimmering golden flowers is a privilege that reminds you life is worth living. It's a pain to dig 50 holes, I'll admit, to labor in the garden when I've already put the vegetable garden to bed, to kneel in the cold, wet ground. But, like making chicken soup when you're sick, or simply sick of the ways of our world, we do what we can to live on another day. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. Now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.